All right. So today we have myself and Chris Papa. We have my colleague, Victoria Whitaker. Hi, Victoria. Hi, everyone. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, yeah, this is everybody, not just to you, Chris. Oh, that was a pretty interesting interview with, with David Cleghorn. David's the uh, chief housing officer at uh, Help USA in NYC. He's an amazing dude. Yeah, he's done some really great work, and he's busy. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work out there to be done, and he's going to share that with us today. Well, he was born in a homeless shelter, which I did not know. And then he now develops homeless shelters. Right? I mean, yeah, if you want to learn more, you, you got to listen. Um, I think his story is really interesting and um, you'll get a chance to learn more about David, but also about the great work he's doing. Awesome. Well, all right, folks, please check out this podcast episode with David Clayhorn. Thank you. All right, David, thanks for joining us on the uh, Impact Real Estate Podcast. Thank you uh, for having me. Glad to talk to you. Yeah. So we have Victoria Whitaker here, my colleague, joining us. Hi, Victoria. Hi, everyone. Hi. Victoria has a plant behind her named Kobe, <laughs> which she coincidentally, <laughs> bought, she coincidentally oh. bought the day Kobe died, which is very weird. Mm. I love Kobe. That's that's why. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that makes more sense. That's weird. <laughs> So David, you're are you are the chief housing officer at Help USA, which is based out of New York, right? In Manhattan. That's correct. Can you tell us about Help and what, what you do there? Sure. Um, so Help USA is a is a large nonprofit social service organization. Uh, we've been around for a little more than twenty five years now. The organization started in the in the in the late nineteen eighties. Uh, in response to New York City's homeless crisis um, that was um, basically precipitated by the crack epidemic and um, deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities. So um, the organization uh, was founded in that period of time, kind of created a model of transitional housing uh, for families and for single adults that um, was different at the time in in that it was um, purpose-built sort of purpose-built shelter where you'd move families in and surround them with social services and healthcare and uh, work with them to, to move on to permanent housing. Um, and the model prior to that had been essentially emergency type shelters, church basements, armories, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, out of that, the organization started to do um, permanent uh, affordable housing uh, in the, in the 90s, uh, did a few projects here and there in New York City and a couple other cities. Um, really sort of opportunity driven, um, utilizing uh, consultants um, and sort of as we continued to, to develop the social service space in New York City and the homeless uh, shelters and, and transitional housing facilities. And then in the in the early to mid 2000s, whatever you call that first decade of this century, um, yeah, the aughts, <laughs> the aughts. Yeah. Um, the, the board decided through a strategic plan that it wanted to uh, continue to operate family transitional and single adult shelter, but also wanted to really professionalize and beef up the, the permanent housing and supportive housing development. And mm -hmm. so um, I got to know the organization probably in 2007 or so um, when I was a real estate development consultant, an affordable housing consultant in Philadelphia. Um, 
And then uh, our CEO uh, became the CEO in, I think, 2011, um, decided to bring me on board as a staff person to, um, to really build up a pipeline. Uh, I came on board in 2012 and um, started doing a couple projects that we had already been working on. And then um, some renovations of our early tax credit deals, the ones from the early 90s, we, we mm-hmm. re-syndicated and did those over again. Um, I started to build up a staff and then I think it was 2017, um, is when I, when I got the, 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 the C-suite title, um, mm. because at that point I was sort of drafted into overseeing the property management operations of our permanent housing. That's and cool. so, um, since then I've been chief housing officer rather than vice president of real estate development. And, and now in my role, I still oversee all of the real estate development. And permanent housing development, but I but I also oversee the operations of the property management company, um, which is just much harder, I think, and mm-hmm. um, way less glamorous than um, than building the buildings, but is really important, you know, because we spend you know three, four, five years sometimes putting these deals together, and it's important that they be managed well so that the the supportive housing and affordable units are beneficial to the people living there, but also so that the, the asset itself is well taken care of and, um, and we can pay our bills and repay some of our deferred developer fee and can, and continue to operate. So that's sort of the condensed version of, of, of who help is and where we are. Um, and, um, you know, we've really been growing quickly. I just, I was working on something earlier today for a different presentation, but, um, we've done, 14 projects in the last eight years at about a little over $500 million worth of total development. And what's interesting though, is that in the next three years, we have, um, we have, I think six projects in the pipeline, which are more than $500 million in development. So we're getting, we're, we're starting to do bigger projects mm-hmm. and doing them with more frequency. So awesome. uh, eventually I'll chart that out, but um, yeah, so that's where that's, that's how we got to where we are today. Awesome. And then, so you're, so you said first it was, it's permanent. And then before that it wasn't permanent housing. What's like the, what's the difference between those two? Well, no. So, so transitional housing is just, is, is a form of shelter. New York city um, has a right to shelter law. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was, it's since, since 1979. Uh, basically if you're homeless in New York city and you show up and say that you're in need of shelter, we are, we are, the city is constitutionally obligated to provide shelter to you. Um, and what that has done is, is a couple things. It's, it's meant that primarily homeless families are not living on the streets. Um, and they go into, they go into transitional housing, which are basically apartment style living, um, where there's supportive services and, um, housing counselors and, and housing specialists and, um, they stay for a couple months or, or a year, year and a half, and then they're placed into permanent housing someplace, mm-hmm. usually in all these beautiful new buildings that we're building all over New York City. Um, and then um, that that was what the organization started doing. And then the permanent housing, permanent affordable housing that we do is almost exclusively low-income housing tax credits, mm-hmm. 9% deals and 4% deals. Um, we you know, it would be a nice narrative if we could say that we built 150 units in Brooklyn and we moved 150 families from our shelter system into those units. Not quite how it works, um, but um, 
we do provide all of our projects have anywhere between 20% and 100% of the units set aside um, for um, special needs, which is typically for us um, homeless at risk of homelessness with uh, and or and or serious persistent mental illness, um, substance abuse, uh, that type of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Are you obviously it seems like you guys are in New York. What other geographies are you guys in and how does that maybe shift the, the way that things look? Because obviously. Yeah. Ordinances like this. Well, uh, the the homeless the homeless component of what we do is primarily New York City, right? Um, we have uh, we have transitional housing facilities in Las Vegas, uh, and we have uh, one in Philadelphia. Um, we and one in um, uh, Suffolk County, Long Island. the 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 right to housing means that there has to be um, resources for that. So the, the Department of Homeless Services in New York City has a annual budget of something like $2 billion. Um, outside of New York City, that doesn't really exist. Um, and so we don't have um, that type of model elsewhere, but we do focus a lot on our permanent supportive housing. Um, so we are active in New York City and, and, and throughout New York State, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, District of Columbia. We're doing our first project in New Haven, Connecticut, and we actually, um, we have a project, we have a permanent housing project in Las Vegas also, and we'll be doing more uh, there in the coming years, uh, as well as continuing to develop in the areas that we already exist in. Um, but yeah. it's really um, the, the Help USA activities outside of New York tend to be permanent housing and uh, some social services. When you're trying to get a deal awarded, like or a tax credit award, like is there a difference? Is there like an allocation to nonprofits and to for profits, and is there a different sort of process through that? And is the product different at the end as well? Product should not be different uh, at the end because we're all playing by the same rules. Um, what uh, most most states, uh, their housing finance agencies, most states do have a nonprofit set aside uh, for, for nonprofit developers. Um, we typically are are sort of competing if if you if you look at it that way in the supportive housing set asides, which most states require that they be a nonprofit or a JV partnership with a nonprofit. Um, we, um, I, you know, I think our product, uh, what we build, um, and the 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 quality of the buildings that we build, I think are on par or better than, than what others do. Um, part of that is, um, part of that honestly is that, and, and there, and I should caveat this with that there are a tremendous number of really high quality uh, for-profit developers that really care about doing this work and do excellent work and are, you know, kind of mission driven profit agencies, if you will. Um, but there are also others um, that, are, that are not quite like that. And, um, you know, we earn a developer fee on these projects, um, but, and, but at the end of the day, since we're an owner operator and a mission driven nonprofit, it makes sense for us to spend a little bit more money on a building if it's gonna save us money down the road, or if it's going to help us deliver services better for our residents, which will keep them as residents. Um, and it's just better overall for, for the project, for the, for the family of the individual and for us as the organization. But 
we do high quality finishes. We try to do, um, um, I, I think, especially the last five, five, seven years worth of projects that we've done. Um, I'd say that you, if you walked into one, you would have no idea that you were in anything, but you know, you would think you were in a market rate apartment. Awesome. And then, um, as far as the services are concerned, now that you're on the operational side of things, like, like what sort of, like you, what sort of services do you provide? Is, is it like per, is it different per each, uh, uh, property? Yeah, it it, it's funding driven really. Um, so uh, there, I oversee the, so in my role overseeing the operations, I do not oversee the delivery of social services uh, and that's intentional because we want our property managers to be collecting rent, um, right. operating the building. We don't want them to necessarily have to engage with somebody that has not paid rent, but, um, for reasons that are, um, you know, specific to that person, we don't want to actually move to evict or we want to give them more time. It's, it's better for social services to have a little bit of freedom there to, yeah. to, de to deal with, um, with the resident and in New York city, because New York city is New York city. Um, there's a lot more money to provide social services through, um, both city and state programs. And so in our New York city, um, properties are our, our social service staff um, provide those services, but they report to a different person than me. Um, and outside of New York City, we tend we primarily partner or you know hire a third party local to whatever city we're in to provide those social services and property management just sort of coordinates. The services that we typically provide um, on most projects are, are you know case management, uh, referrals to mental health and substance abuse and job training. Um, and sometimes depending on the building youth services, um, um, and, 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 and things like that. And, and New York city, some of our buildings are a little bit more service intensive where we might have healthcare on site. Um, we might have, um, mental health and substance abuse, uh, staff on site. Um, to work with with folks, um, but across the board, it's it's about an, an entitlement management, making sure that they're receiving their their um, their SSI or their SSDI or, or or whatever other supports that they have, and their rental assistance, and making sure that they don't lose their rental assistance by becoming completely overwhelmed with the voluminous application that comes every year for them to reapply for rental assistance, and um, helping them just sort of navigate the daily barriers to, to that can sometimes cause people to um, lose their permanent housing. And so our goal primarily uh, in permanent housing and help is to keep people in permanent housing. You know, the goal, the, the way you end homelessness is through permanent housing. And we're going to, we're going to put, you know, a family or an individual into an apartment. Um, we really want to make sure that they stay there until they decide to leave. Damn, man. You're doing a lot of good work out there, huh? Well, we try. <laughs> it's, Sounds exhausting. Yeah, yeah it's not. It's <laughs> it, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. I, I think, um, you know, the one of the things that I think uh, is I've been um, kind of reflecting on a lot lately is as my role has changed and as my is my like responsibilities to other people, meaning like I'm not just working by myself. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I've had to learn how to say no to some projects, which has been difficult because I think most people in my position are kind of like deal junkies. I mean, you you, kind of feel like there's no project you can't do. Mm. Uh, And that might be true, but then you kind of have to ask yourself, well, is it worth it? So, you know, we might, we have a, a project on a veterans administration hospital in Maryland that took 10 full years to get from the initial approval to do the project to moving people in. Wow. That was, that was actually worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have another project that I won't say which <laughs> that, <laughs> that took a number of years and I would never do it again. Um, it just, it, it would not be worth it at this point. And so those are some of the skills that I think you have to learn um, as you get into positions of leadership and as you go forward in your career, because, you know, your initial, your initial, my initial response to everything is, yeah, let's do that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at the tax credit award and I think every deal on there should be our deal. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, Even though I never heard of them until I saw that they were funded by some group I'd never heard of. So it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of those things. Do you ever pro- or partner with for-profit firms too? Yeah, we, yeah, we do. And um, we primarily we when we do, we're, we're actually the bigger partner, um, mm-hmm. JV, um, where in some cases, especially in New York City, if you want to do a supportive housing project with HPD, the Housing Preservation Development, um, it has to be a nonprofit sponsor. And so uh, smaller for profits that might have access to land. Um, that want to do a supportive housing project and, and increase the number of units for the zoning bonuses and things, they have to partner with a nonprofit. Um, so we've done that a few times. Um, we are partnering with, and we're starting to do a few more uh, kind of more 50-50 partnerships, mm-hmm. um, but those are much bigger projects where it makes sense to spread the risk around a little bit and have more capacity. So we're we're looking at something that's pretty large in, in the Bronx, something that's pretty large in Rochester. And those are those are with four like established for profit developers that will kind of like, you know, split split the responsibilities even. What we don't do is um, that thing where a nonprofit sort of like is there name only. Um, and with the 501c3 status for tax benefits and things, that's not something that we do. Yeah. And we partner with other nonprofits too, um, in the same way that we would partner with another for-profit. Awesome. Well, it sounds like, you know, like you said, you're doing great work. You've been in the affordable industry for a while, kind of, how did you get there? Like, how, how did you end up in affordable housing? Um, we'd love to just kind of hear your journey. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the long and short of it is, is I grew up in a family that was, um, uh, both my parents were homeless advocates. Um, they, um, um, uh, I was born in, um, I was actually born and in, in, into a homeless shelter, but we weren't homeless, if that makes sense. Oh. Um, work my, parents, <laughs> my parents, um, hmm. I was, I was born in, in kind of an intentional community in Washington, DC in the, in the, in the early seventies. And, um, um, it, you know, ran soup kitchen. My, my parents were part of running soup kitchens and shelters. And then we moved around a lot. And oh, wow. yeah. my mom and my mom was sort of a social worker and my dad would, um, write grants and, and help, um, secure financing. 
and growing up, I just remember being around homeless folks all the time. And, um, you know, my, my parents were, uh, they're, they're, they're both Catholic and they were very, um, uh, part of a Catholic worker, um, movement yeah. sort of thing. And awesome. um, very, very mission driven. And when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I came out for, out of college, um, I started, uh, working with mentally ill folks and then doing homeless street outreach. Um, mm-hmm. and I did that for a couple of years and I was getting married and, um, you know, you're barely not homeless when you work in homeless services. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, there's, right? There's, there's not a lot of money there. Um, and I also, despite growing up in and around homeless people all my life, it's never been in like my comfort zone. Um, and so I went to grad school, decided that I did not want to get a master's in social work. And I decided I did not want to get an MBA because I was afraid that I might get seduced by making a bunch of money doing something I didn't want to do. So I decided on a master's of public administration because that sort of seemed like it was in, in between. Um, I wasn't really thinking very clearly. I just needed to go to grad school. And um, my wife was going to grad school at the same time, so it was the right time. Um, so when I got out, um, she got a job working in Philadelphia. and. Mm-hmm. I was having no trouble finding work in New York um, coming out of Wagner school, but Philly's Philly and it was a little harder to break in. Mm. And um, my resume kept getting sent to this place called Project Home, which is an organization similar to help where they do homeless shelter, homeless outreach, um, social services and permanent housing. And I finally had an interview with them. And I remember the HR person kind of saying that she'd gotten my resume like 10 or 12 times. And I was like, look, I really just don't want to work with homeless, you know, with homeless folks. I, you know, I was like one of those, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm wasting your time moments. And she's like, well, we got this other thing doing um, affordable home ownership. Would you be interested in that? And I said, cool, yeah. said, yeah, sure. I didn't know what it was. Um, and then I interviewed with them and um, the person that I was going to work for, who, who's now a lender, um, asked me to send a sample pro forma. And I remember I said, I don't know what that is. And I went with my economics professor in grad school and said, what's a pro forma? And um, they helped me put something together. And I started working at Project Home in Philly doing affordable home ownership. So, um, and then I got exposure to a tax credit deal they were doing. um, And then I moved on to another CDC, Community Development Corp in, in Philadelphia, where I was kind of a director level person doing home ownership and then also um, a tax credit deal. Then I went to work for the consultant who um, really, that's where I really learned the business because you're doing five or six projects a year. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met help. So it was, it was not, wasn't necessarily planful. Um, mm. I also don't think, and I notice this now with people that I interview for jobs that are coming out of graduate school. I don't remember anybody ever talking about affordable housing. Yeah. Right. School is a thing. Like I, I, you know, so it wasn't. It wasn't that I would have. I would have gravitated to that if I had heard of it. Um, but I feel like I got a little bit lucky that Project Tom kept getting my resume because <laughs> otherwise, well, yeah. My other job was as a facilities director at a mental health facility. I don't, mm. know, where, I don't know where I'd be now if I'd taken that job. Well, that's why we have this podcast, David. 
try to expose people to this industry and different career paths and what people are doing in it and different companies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, when, when I started working in this industry with affordable housing, I didn't know what it was either. And no one I talked to really knew what it was. So, um, and Victoria comes out of working with nonprofits and affordable housing firms and stuff like that. That's her background. Um, so we, you know, we all have a passion for it, but, uh, mm -hmm. love learning about it more and more. Um, that's awesome, man. And so do, would you recommend like working for, I, I think you're the first person I at least interviewed for this that worked for a consultant a consultancy. Would you recommend that for someone who's trying to get into the development world or the affordable oh, yeah. housing development world? Yeah. Yeah. Either that or like, it, it, even if you're a mission driven person and you know, you eventually want to work for a nonprofit, um, going to work for a, a consultant or even, um, even some of the bigger private developers where you'll just be put on the assembly line of like, of the deals, you'll, you'll learn fast how to do the work. Um, it's complicated, but it, but it's, but you know, we're not out here like developing cures for cancer either. I mean, there is a process to this that, that is repeatable. Um, but it, 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 it takes, it takes exposure. So, um, having, uh, having the ability to, to do a lot right away, I think is beneficial. Um, and consultants are always looking for the people coming right out of grad school because they're cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and That's they can funny. teach them. That's funny. Um, Very true. what do you, what do you got? I mean, what do you look for in a project when you're when, like, I know you have to like, you know, do your applications and all that stuff, but is there something specific you're looking for in, in projects? Well, we, we tend to look, so, um, you know, honestly, land availability or building availability is like number one, right? So can we get this thing? Um, and you know, can we get it where we don't have to pay for it or, or we don't have to pay a lot for it? Um, but then we look at the neighborhood, right. And, de and depending on the population that we want to do. So if we're, if we're gonna, um, if our, if our population is going to be single adults, you know, that, that have serious and persistent mental illnesses and, and, and co-occurring substance abuse, we might not want to put them in a neighborhood full of that. Right. Right. Not, yeah. So, um, we, we try to kind of look, fit the project to, to, to the population based on what the neighborhood is and what the resources are in that neighborhood and access to, to transportation jobs and schools. Um, and, and can we make the, can we make the property safe and secure? Um, um, you know, it helps if it's like in a qualified census track where you can get basis boosts. It helps if it's in participating jurisdictions where you can get city money, um, you know, because no matter what, like a 9% tax credit deal is only going to cover about 70% of your costs and 4% is going to cover less than that. Yeah. So you have to have access to those other resources. Um, so you kind of look at all of that. Um, you know, what I, what I sort of turn, you know, some of the projects that I, that I, I, I say we might have done seven or eight years ago that we wouldn't do now um, are, and this, I don't want this to sound mean or cruel, but there are some neighborhoods that just are, are, are a generation or more away from, you know, coming back in any real way. And yeah. with, a, with a supportive population, we don't want to put people in places where they're going to, where they're going to have additional challenges. Um, so, you know, we try to find communities that are going to be welcoming to the population, but also safe for them, um, for our residents. Um, 
you never, you, you know, of course we never find the perfect spot because, you know, affordable housing is, is not easy to cite. And um, oftentimes, oftentimes, you know, I remember economics 101 in grad school, you know, the purpose of a nonprofit in a lot of ways is to fill that space that government can't and that the private market won't. And so we end up building on triangular pieces of land a lot, like, mm -hmm. in, you know, or next to two elevated subway trains, <laughs> places that you would think, wow, I can't believe you're going to build there. So it's, it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, you want to, you want to put the puzzle together and you, but you never have all the pieces. So you want to make sure that the pieces that you're missing, you're making good educated guesses that are going to be beneficial long-term to the, to the tenant. Yeah. Well, your job sounds really cool, but are you ready for the hot seat? Sure. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services, which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. You don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you can't hang up now. Do you want, do you want to start out Victoria? Yes. I do. Um, okay. What has been like your most memorable deal or project um, that you've had, that you've done? Um, uh, the, 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 the cheat, the cheat way to answer that would be to say the last one. Um, okay. But um, I think my, my, the deal that means the most to me probably yeah. Um, is that deal that took 10 years in Maryland that was on the VA campus. It's 75 apartments for chronically homeless veterans on a VA campus next to the hospital yeah. and, and, and like 38 individual houses um, that were built in World War I that we renovated. And we faced extreme community opposition for years on that project. Um, and we were able to negotiate our way through it. Um, yeah. and get the project done so much so now that they're asking us to do another 77 units that we're working on now. So oh, nice. that, that was probably the one that like, um, I'll remember the most, but, but like I have three kids and I'm not going to tell you which one's my favorite. I mean, they're all my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My parents say this. You can tell us off the, off the air. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have any advice for anyone looking to start out in, in this field? Well, you know, I think one of the things that people need to realize, and, and, I, and I, I, I do feel like in some ways, I don't want to get into like generational culture wars or anything, but um, one of the things that I think a lot of times people, especially coming out of school, they're, they're so used to working collaboratively in groups um, and making group decisions. And 
um, in the nonprofit space anyway, there's just not enough money for enough staff to have groups. Like you have to kind of be able to, to carry your projects semi-independently. Um, I also think that um, if you're not comfortable with ambiguity, it's not the right work for you because mm-hmm. your, your budget's never going to be done. It's just never going to be done. Even at closing, it's not done. We've just all decided to say it's done for that day, <laughs> you know, and then it's going to change. Um, you're never going to have, um, you know, you're never going to feel like you have everything you need and you have to make calculated and educated risks, but also do so with the comfort of knowing that this is a highly regulated field. It's really hard to really screw it up. Um, you know, the biggest mistakes that you're going to make are going to really cost you time more than anything else. And, and I've, and I've, I've noticed that, um, we've, I've seen that a lot of people struggle with that and I've, you know, with, with the sort of risk taking, and you also have to be able to multitask. I mean, there's no way, I mean, we, for a nonprofit, we have a lot of projects, but, but even, even if we had two projects, you still have to work on both. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, you know, I think people need to be honest about what they feel like they're going to be good at. And when you're coming out of like graduate school, you might still be in your mid twenties, but you kind of know, you kind of know what you're not comfortable with. And if you're not comfortable with risk and if you're not comfortable with multitasking, um, you know, there's find something else to do. Right. Good advice. All right, cool. Um, what do you look for? It sounds like you were talking a little bit about your team earlier. Um, and as you certainly, as you were thinking, I'm bringing on different projects. What do you, um, look for in hiring people? Uh, well, I mean, I, I've now started directly talking about what I just talked about, um, you know, comfort with risk and comfort with multitasking. Yeah. Um, but I also look to see if people are, um, what their learning style is, um, to see if they're more, um, you know, what I look for is somebody that can learn on their own, but also, uh, comfortable enough to ask questions. Um, but not so much waiting, you know, not, there's no manual really in this work. Like there's no step-by-step it's not A, B, C, D it's, it's A, D, E, C, you know I mean? It, 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 it just, it changes by the deal. Um, so I, I look for people that are flexible, that are able to take risks, um, comfortable with that. You know, it's a nine to five job, except a few times a year, it's not. Um, mm-hmm. and those, those are deadline driven or closing driven. And, um, a willingness to to put in those those hours, which is always a scary conversation to start having these days, um, and um, you know, sort of, do they care about this? Like, why do they want to do affordable housing development? You know, right. sometimes they grew up in it. Sometimes there's a family connection, like I had. You know, um, other times they'd never heard of it until recently, and they just think it sounds awesome. You know. Yeah. Um, but there has to be there. Ha- I feel like there has to be at least some level of passion. Otherwise, it, it, the the brain damage of the work is just too frustrating. Right. Yeah. There's got to be there's got to be a bigger why, right? Yeah. I'm to it. Uh, how do you feel your real estate has impact on the world? Like, what is your why? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think about that sometimes. I mean, I think um, in our family, you know. I look at it two ways and and it took me a long time to come to this. Like 
one of my one of my colleagues, you know, has always challenged me like, if we're doing this project, why is it going to be better than somebody else doing it with the limited amount of resources that we have? Mm-hmm. And he used to make me upset when he would say that, and I'd say because it's us, you know. But he was actually right, and 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 you have to like think about why why what we're doing is important. And so in our family projects, to me, it's really about about the people that are going to grow up there less than the parents almost. Um, you know, li- children living in a stable, clean, healthy environment uh, are going to do better in school. They're going to they're going to have an opportunity to potentially um, break break the cycle of poverty um, by by living in these buildings. Um, and then on the on the chronically homeless veteran side, and this is going to sound kind of morbid, but you know the veterans project in Maryland, and and we see this all the time with our homeless pro- projects. You move people in, and they a few months later they die. Um, and it's a phenomenon that other colleague organizations have talked about too. And I I think there's sort of like you're off the street, out of the shelter, you let your guard down a little bit, um, yeah. but. For some of our some of our residents in some of these buildings, the fact that they might live there for a couple of years, six months, twelve months, eighteen months, and sort of um, have a place where they could, you know, move move on in a uh, in a safe environment, surrounded by people that care about them, I think that's really actually pretty important, rather than dying under a bridge somewhere. Wow, um, I didn't even think of that. That's awesome. And, yeah. You know, that's that's on the other end of the spectrum, and then of course there's there's plenty of, of, of formerly homeless people that we move in to our buildings that have the ability to sort of deal with whatever issues that they had um, and, and, you know, get jobs and, and start to sort of re-engage with the world again. Um, so those are, those are really the, the kind of um, three, three places that I think it impacts the world and, you know, giving and all of those kind of relate back to like a dignity, right? Like you, there's a dignity in having a place to live. There's a dignity in having a place that's nice. Um, so even if you're living in, you know, if you're living in, in, in North Philadelphia in a building, a former school building that we did a couple of years ago, mm. you're, you have like the nicest house in the neighborhood, right. you know, hardwood floors, tall ceilings, giant windows. Um, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you can be proud of it. And, um, and you know if everybody's paying for it they're paying rent it's not it's not it's not like a public housing situation or something where they're where people are paying zero um and I, so i think the dignity is what really kind of transcends the different populations that we work with that's that a great sense. answer man that's awesome well david it was great getting to know you man thanks for coming yeah, on here and sharing your story it's an amazing story yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you guys it's fun